All right, well, good morning. So our mission as a church is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And, uh, and I say that because all of these different things that we're doing, Rio Men, Rio Women, Alpha, all of this stuff, uh, is not just to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's offered also to give you a vehicle by which to help lead others into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So here's what I'd love for you guys to do. I'd love for you to be sitting there thinking, oh, wait a minute, you know, I got this amazing thing. It's called Rio Men. It's going to be happening at 730. It's going to be on Tuesday. It's going to be high cholesterol. It's going to be high fun. And Sam, who was just up here, is going to give a great talk. I go every month and every month I walk away going, man, that was amazing. Like that was awesome. And it's for you and for the three people that you're going to invite, I hope. Reach out to somebody. Take the step. Invite them to Rio men, or ladies, invite them to Rio women. Thursday nights, if you are not a believer in Jesus, Alpha, that's for you. It's a safe place for you to kind of talk about the big issues of life. To hear, yeah, the Christian perspective on it. And then to sit there in a community of people who have covenanted together to give you the opportunity to speak and to say whatever it is you want to say, my cares, my concerns, my doubts, my fears, my hurts, my experiences, whatever, without feeling badgered or argued with or whatever, that's for you, but it's also for your friends. So take advantage of these things. Be used of the Lord to reach people and to lead them into a growing relationship with Jesus. That's why we... We put all of these things online, our digital library, and so forth. It's for your benefit, but for the benefit of people that you know. So with all that said, as we continue today with our study of the parables of Jesus, we come today to a story that is provoked by a question. And it's a question that is posed by a lawyer, and lawyers ask questions. But this is not that kind of lawyer. So let me explain. This is not the guy who in Jesus' day, if you were in a car accident, you would hire to represent you, okay? Or if you had a business issue and it was a contractual thing and you'd bring the lawyer in to kind of help represent you. This is not, I mean, let's just say hypothetically that someone, I don't know, dressed like me, was driving on Northeast 26th Street going 45 and a 35 and then discovered how well patrolled the area is by getting a ticket. This is not the guy who would then send letters to the mailbox of this person, I mean, like, with amazing, just the ticket center, the ticket clinic, the ticket guru, the ticket doctor, the ticket whatever. I mean, like, it's amazing. Uh, and incidentally, um, if you have a good driving record, those people are really helpful. So just throw that out there. It worked. Not that guy. This guy that we meet today is a lawyer, but he is an expert in the law of God and in all of the rules and traditions that had grown up and been developed around the law of God through the Jewish people. This man is a Bible knowledge, tradition knowledge, rule knowledge guy. That's who he is. It's his identity. What we're talking about today, ultimately, is identity. What you do is a reflection of who you are. And so he enters into this dialogue with Jesus, and Jesus asks him a question about rules. He's like, well, what are the two most important rules in the Bible, the two biggest laws? And Bible Answer Man stands up in the midst of this also pretty religious crowd. I mean, they're all there to hear a religious talk. At the very least, they're, they're questioning, they're curious. And he's, got, he's like, I got this one. I'm, that's who I am. I'm the Bible Answer Man, so I'm going to stand up, and I got this one. So it is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's rule number one, Jesus. Rule number two is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And as he's saying this, he's feeling the crushing weight of that. Well, I mean, let's just rehearse for a second. You shall not, you might want to consider, okay, you shall love, that's all in, the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, the operative word being all. And oh, oh, by the way, the very obvious and clear implication means all of the time, perfectly. How you doing? Not so great. That's worse than 45 and a 35. There's no lawyer to get you out of that one. So this guy tells Jesus that, and then he moves to the next law, knowing he can't get out of this one, and it's already crushing enough. And he says, all right, so here's the deals. Rule number two, love your neighbor, and here's the catch, as yourself. And he's feeling the weight of this, and he thinks to himself, look, I can't minimize rule number one, but maybe I can minimize rule number two if I can dumb down who my neighbor is. In other words, maybe I can love my neighbor as myself if my neighbor is pretty much almost exactly like me. And so he asks this question that then provokes the story that we're going to look at. He says to Jesus, okay, but who is my neighbor? And here's what he's thinking. If my neighbor looks like me and walks like me and talks like me and thinks like me and lives like me and wait a minute, wait, 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 and votes like me, I'm going to park there for a second. Why? Because what we're talking about today is identity. And I think a lot of people inside the church, not just out, have assumed a new identity. And before I am a son or a daughter of Jesus, and the son or daughter of the King through faith in Christ, a forgiven, spirit-filled Christian on mission as a citizen of the kingdom of God above and beyond everything else, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm for this president or I'm against this president or I stand for this or I stand against this or whatever the case may be. It has taken us over without us realizing what it is. It has become who we are and what we do is a reflection of who we are. We're going to be called to love our neighbor as ourself. And we're demonizing people who are not like ourselves. This guy's like, all right, so here's the deal. Who's my neighbor? Because if he looks like me and walks like me and talks like me and thinks like me and lives like me, if he votes like me, if he agrees with me on all the political, social, and cultural issues of our day that mean more to me than almost anything else, hang on, maybe I can love him. Because basically he will be me. You know, like I can, and I love me, so I can love him like me if he's just like me. Okay, it's in response to that that Jesus tells a story. And it's a story that deals with identity. What we are determines what we do. It's a story that comes to us and that tells us that following Jesus, and that's always the invitation, Jesus is asking you to follow him. Every story is an invitation. He is altogether invitational. Following Jesus means learning how to what? To be a a statement of identity. Good neighbor, well, to anyone who comes across your path. And as the story will make clear, your neighbor that you're supposed to love as yourself is anyone who comes across your path, whether or not they look like you and walk like you and talk like you and think like you and live like you and vote like you and agree with you on anything. And hey, here's the deal. Who you are will determine what you do in this regard. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? He answers this in Luke 10, beginning in verse 30. He says that Jesus replied, and he says, a man, and I know it's frustrating, we're two words in, right? But I'm going to stop for a second, because the man matters. 
the man that he's describing here is an obviously a Jewish man. He's speaking to a Jewish religious man, and he's speaking to a Jewish religious audience. They're all together Jewish. He's like, okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to paint the picture of somebody exactly like you guys. So a man who looks and walks and talks and thinks and lives and votes and agrees with you on everything. Someone just like you was what? Was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he means that literally. All these people in his first century audience understood this road. They knew the road. They have walked the road again and again and again and again and again throughout the course of their lives. And here's what they knew about the road. Three things. One, it's 17 miles long. Two, it literally descends 3,500 feet in elevation as you travel down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Three, it was notoriously dangerous. People were regularly robbed, beaten, and even murdered on this road. It had an unofficial name. Like, it didn't actually have, like, a street sign with this name on it. But everybody knew the name of the road. It was called the Way of Blood. Hey, where are you going today? I'm taking the Way of Blood. I'm going down to Jericho. The Way of Blood, guys. So then what else did they know? They knew that nobody should travel this road alone, ever. That's crazy. It's madness. It's foolishness. What are you doing? You're asking for it. This guy's asking for it. Jesus, the master storyteller, has a man just like you. He's done something crazy. He's done something foolish. Ever do that? Like, oh. A man like you is traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and so then what happened? Because it's entirely predictable. This crazy, foolish man, he says, fell among robbers, and he did to him what robbers do. They stripped him. That means they took his clothes off. You're like, why would they do that? Because they didn't have like Old Navy back then. Clothes were really expensive. You know, you can go to Old Navy, you can buy three outfits for 30 bucks, you know, and you can wear them four times and throw them away and go get more. Like, they didn't mass produce this stuff. These were hand-woven, very expensive. Most people had one change of clothing. That's it. So it's a valuable item. They strip him of his clothes. They beat him and then they depart, it says, leaving him helpless and naked and bleeding and half dead, but not entirely dead, which is important because Jesus then says, now by chance a priest, so a very religious person, was going down that road, which was also not unusual. And all the people in his original audience knew this. See, it's estimated that half of the orders of priests that served up in Jerusalem in the temple lived down in Jericho. They would go up twice a year to serve, each one of them. And so it was pretty common to see priests and Levites also traveling up and down and up and down and up and down this road. So his audience is just nodding along. They're like, yeah, I've seen that. But what does this priest do? Now, by chance, a priest was going down that same road. And when that Jewish priest saw this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish man, instead of loving him like himself, he thought of only himself. He sees this guy, and what is this guy's presence and condition telling him? It's telling him he's in danger. I mean, this guy's half dead. He's not fully dead. He's actively bleeding is the idea. Like, this just happened to this guy, and I don't know if it was five minutes ago or 15 minutes ago, but it wasn't a whole lot more than that. And all of a sudden, now I've come across this guy, and what he's saying to me is that danger is pretty doggone close to who? Me. And beyond that, if I stop, i got to get out of here. But if I stop now here, what am I going to carry this guy? Like, I mean, he's going to slow me down. I can't get out of here fast enough if I'm also going to stop and, and, and help him out. And even if there was no danger around, let's say those guys are long gone, and I don't know one way or the other if they are, he's still a project. 
So this represents time, money, energy, effort. The priest runs the math on this. And he looks around, see if there's anybody who's going to see what he's doing because he knows it's wrong. See if there's any cameras that are going to record this that, you know, like somebody can use and put on the Internet and his reputation will be ruined. And he passes by on the other side after he makes sure it's clear that he's going to maintain the reputation that he loves. But not do what it implies. But he's not alone. He's in good company, as it turns out. It says, so likewise, a Levite, another Jewish religious man, when he came to the place and he saw this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish man, ran the same math, came to the same conclusion, said, I do not love you half as much as I love myself. My goodness. Looks around. Coast is clear. He passed by on the other side. Why is Jesus using, using religious people? I mean, I think some of the answers to that are really obvious. He's talking to a religious person. Bible answer, man, it's who he is. It's all he is. He's got it all in here and nothing out here. He knows all the answers. He lives out zero of them. And he wants this guy to identify with this, but not just him. The whole audience, again, at least they're curious, if not actively deeply religious. Beyond that, Jesus knows the stories is going to get told and then it's going to get retold and it's going to get re-retold and re-re-re-re-retold. Over thousands of years it will be told. And who will it be told to? Religious people. It'll be told to people like me. It'll be told to people like you. At the very least, people who are curious enough to come and, and listen to a religious talk. And beyond that, Jesus knows and I know and you know and pretty much the whole world knows that there is an expectation in regard to religious people. And what is that expectation? It is that we will be merciful to people in need. And you know what? That's a reasonable expectation. Why is it a reasonable expectation? Because everybody knows the answer to this too. It's because pretty much everyone knows that like, you know, in the Bible somewhere, right? Like there's there's stories like this. This is this is the stuff you guys read. This is the stuff you, you Christians, this is the stuff you study. Like you come to church and then, you know, somebody like this gets up and, and then they tell the stories. This is what you guys are all about, right? This is formative. This is helping develop who you are. So they rightly expect this, but we don't always do it. Do we agree on that? I mean, sometimes we do it, and sometimes we don't do it, and sometimes we don't do it at all. We don't always do it. And, and so as we begin to think about the story, even though we it's pretty obvious like who the bad guys are, so the priest and the Levite, obviously they get it wrong. Everybody who's ever read this story, a child can tell you that. Oh, man, they left the guy in the ditch. You know, but as we begin to do now the math on us, we start relating to them in a way that's a little uncomfortable, and we think to ourselves, how can I come up with an excuse for them? Because if I can come up with an excuse for them, maybe I can also come up with an excuse for me. And so, you know, you just want to go, hey, Jesus, so wait a minute. I hate to interrupt one of the most famous stories ever told, but maybe the priest and the Levite saw the guy who's half dead, but they thought he was actually dead, fully dead. And wasn't there, you know, some kind of a rule? Weren't there laws or something about, you know, a priest and a Levite, particularly if they're going to go serve in the temple or whatever, they shouldn't touch anything that's dead. And so maybe they thought he was dead and they didn't want to touch him because, I mean, you know, they were going up to do their service in the temple and they would be unclean and unfit for the service. And that nah, doesn't work because Jesus, the master storyteller, takes it all away from us at the beginning. He's like, no, no, no. 
They are leaving Jerusalem. They're traveling down the road too. Which means they've already done their priestly duties. And beyond that, in that day, and his audience knew this, there was an affirmative duty. It was understood on every Jewish person that if you came across a corpse, you would bury the corpse. So if they thought he was dead, why didn't they go over to bury him? Had they done that, they would have realized, wait a minute, he's still breathing. He's, he's moaning, he's groaning, like he's alive, this guy. They didn't think he was dead. They knowingly did what they did. And you're like, all right, so well then, thought number two. Uh, maybe they just made a judgment call in regard to this guy. I mean, you know, it's the way of blood. Good grief. Everybody knew that it's just nuts to go walking down that road alone, which is what this guy's doing. I mean, what did he expect was going to happen to him when he started this journey? Didn't he anticipate that he might be the next headline in the Jerusalem Gazette? I mean, come on, man. Maybe they just thought, you know what? This guy needs to learn a lesson. I mean, you know, we, he needs to be taught a hard lesson And maybe if he's taught the hard lesson and it's in the Jerusalem Gazette, it will save the lives of countless others who have thought, you know, maybe I could walk that road by myself. Is that it? Yeah, I think he takes that away too. And he does it by making the priest and the Levite travel the road alone as well. In other words, he makes them guilty of the same foolishness, of the same craziness of the same stupidity of the same invitation of danger he's like yeah this guy in the ditch is is really no different from you i think that what jesus is saying in this story among many other things is that look we human beings all of us are made of the same clay the same substance the same stuff and the reality is given just the right set of circumstances we're all capable of ending up in the same ditch. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but like, if I'll, I'll raise mine. I, you know, anybody who's ever done anything crazy. I mean, anybody who's ever done anything foolish. Anybody who's ever done anything stupid. It's all of us. Anybody who's ever been completely overrun by your passions and did the dumbest, most irrational possible thing in that moment, that is everyone. Now, we might not have ended up in the same spot as some people that we run into, but we sure could have. And some of us have actually been in the same spot as some of the people that we run into. But the point is that the story is meant to humble us, meant to make us compassionate toward people who find themselves in it, meant to remind us that we share the same humanity and the same brokenness and the same weaknesses and the same flaws, and that given just the right set of circumstances, Hard as it may be for us to imagine, and it shouldn't actually be that hard, we could end up in the same place. That's part of the point. So the priest goes by, the Levite goes by, and then Jesus says something utterly astonishing to this entirely Jewish audience. He says, but a Samaritan, an inveterate enemy of the Jewish people, a man who belonged to a group of people who for centuries upon centuries had terrorized the Jews and had been terrorized by the Jews. It went both ways as he journeyed from the city of Jerusalem where he has just experienced for being a Samaritan, abuse upon abuse upon abuse upon abuse. As he journeyed down from there to Jericho, came to where this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish man was located. And when he saw him, he had compassion for him. And notwithstanding the fact that... I mean, the robbers could still be around. This guy is like a siren going, you're in danger, you know? 
Notwithstanding the fact that now this guy is going to slow him down, notwithstanding the fact that even if the robbers have fled and have left and are actually not going to attack him, who knows, but let's say they won't, this guy's still a project. He represents time and money and energy and effort and all kinds of stuff. Oh, good grief. And notwithstanding the fact that this Samaritan knew almost as a virtual certainty that had the situation been reversed, that man in the ditch would just walk right by him. He came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him. He got down in the dirt. He went to him and and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. It's medicinal. No doubt he clothes him with, I don't know, maybe his only other set of clothing. Expensive. And he picks him up, getting blood on now his clothing. Oh, so that's great. And he set him on his own animal. And while he walks, leading this guy on his animal that he previously was riding, he pulls out his cell phone. He calls his wife. He's like, hey, honey, he's like, I know it's your mother's birthday tonight. And you know that you know that I would be there for you if I could. Yeah, that, I'm going somewhere with this. So just let me get it all the way out. So like, I, I know that the kids are coming. I know the grandkids are coming. I know you've already roasted the pig. I know that all this, I can practically smell the food from here. I can picture it in my mind. It is beautiful. It is amazing. I know that as the man of the house in this culture, I am the host of the banquet that we are throwing at our house tonight that I'm not going to be there for. And uh, so I, you know, heads up on that. Um, and here's why, because I'm, it's just crazy thing. So I'm walking down the way of blood and I just, just stay with me. And then I, I come across this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish man. And I, yeah, no, he's Jewish. No, 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 no. Listen, no, no I, I know what they did to your dad. No, babe, I remember what they said about our daughter the last time we were in the city I, I, I know all of this stuff. I, I was just there. I, you don't have to remind me. It's just, here's what happened. So I'm, I'm walking and I see this guy. And it's like the Spirit of God rose up within me and reminded me who I am and what God has done for me. And then I looked at this guy and I thought, man, if it, if it was me in the ditch and it was him on the donkey, what, what would I want him to do for me? So I'm going to miss the party. Hangs up. And he's got to call his secretary. Hey, uh, just checking in. I know you moved heaven and earth and you're going to hate me for this. So I'm just going to put that up front and we're just going to own that on the front end of the conversation. Uh, I know that this meeting for tomorrow is like a really big deal for our company, for all of us. Like it's big for my future, for all our employees. Like all of this stuff matters. I understand that. I know it was almost impossible to get us all in the same room together at the same time. And I am not going to make the meeting and I need you to reschedule it. But please don't tell anybody why. Because the reason is that I'm on the way of blood Helpless, naked, bleeding, dying, Jewish man. and it, Yeah. No, my wife's already said that. No, 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 listen, I, I've heard all of this already. Look, I just had this conversation. No, don't call her. Don't. I don't need you guys talking right now. I just, and don't tell anybody why we're rescheduling. Look, here's the deal. I, I'm, I'm, I'm walking on the way of blood and here's this guy and he's in the ditch and, and it's like, it, I am a child of God, and I know what He's done for me. Felt like the Lord was saying, "Well, then do that for Him." 
love him like you would love yourself. Like, what do you want him to do for you if the situation's reversed? And I thought, well, I want him to reschedule the meeting and miss the birthday and do whatever it takes. a lot to it. There's sacrifice involved. He goes to the guy, he gets down in the dirt, bandages him up, gives him a change of clothes. He's already in it now. It's expensive. The question is, how much more is he going in? Hmm. That's a good question. So he puts him on his own animal and he takes him to an inn. And it took care of him, it says. Meaning all night. Now he's lost sleep. Okay, but the next day he gets a little smart, right? So like before he obligates himself any further, he gets a full name, he gets an address, he takes a picture of this guy's driver's license, he gets his social security number, he runs a credit check, and he has him sign a promissory note. It's like, look, I, you know, I mean, how much more do you want me to go on that? He doesn't do any of that. Says that he took out two denarii, that's enough for room and board for two weeks, and he gave them to the innkeeper. And culturally, this matters. Innkeepers in that culture were notoriously dishonest. Everybody in that first century audience is like, oh, we know about those guys. And now notice what he does next, saying, take care of him, and what? Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It's like he takes his checkbook out, he writes a check to the innkeeper signs it and leaves it blank and just says, dude, I don't know you. I'm just going to trust you're a good guy, even though none of you seem to be. And when you're done, just put the amount in and it'll clear. You're like, oh my goodness. What happens next? I mean, does the guy live or die? It's a good question. What about the innkeeper? Does he take advantage of the generosity of the Samaritan? Okay, how about the Jewish man and the Samaritan? Like, does the Jewish man like circle back with the Samaritan? Does he does he reimburse him for all? Like, send him like three pairs of clothes for helping him out? Like, do their families become friends? Is this sort of like a peace and reconciliation thing that happens? Like, what goes on next, Tom? What's next in the story? I have no idea. It's where the story ends, unless the story finds life in us which is what it's meant to do. The story continues through you. But that depends on who you are. What you do comes out of who you are. It's a matter of identity. Guys, this story is a call to action. The whole of the Christian faith is a call to action. If you have a Christian faith and there's no action, you don't have a Christian faith. And Jesus doesn't beat around the bush with that. What we do, that comes out of who we are. I love what this man named Dr. Klein Snodgrass, who has an amazingly interesting name, and he's, he does. It could not have been easy for him in middle school. But I'll tell you, he is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scholar. He's written what I think is the best book on the parables of Jesus that exists. And I love this man. One of the many things that he says about this parable is he says this parable exposes any religion with a mania for creeds and an anemia for deeds. Who's he telling it to? He's telling it to the Bible answer, man. He's got all the answers. And no deeds. He's like, yeah, that doesn't work. 
And we know that it's a call to action because it's what Jesus does next. He turns and he looks at this expert in the law. And at the same time, he looks at all of us because he knows it's going to be told to religious people from now on. And he says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, what? Proved. Proved to what? To be. That's a statement of identity. You prove what you are by what you do. Prove to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, at which point the lawyer was like, no, 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 wait a minute, Madam Court Reporter, could you reread my question? Because that, that's not the deal. I asked, who is my neighbor? He doesn't say that. Nobody who reads this story says that. We all know that's already been answered. So who is your neighbor? It's not every hurting person on every everybody's path, but it is every hurting person on your path. Jesus says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be the statement of identity, a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Bible answer man said, no, the one who showed mercy. Proved it by what he did. Who he was was revealed by what he did. And Jesus said to that man, and to me, and to you, He said, you go and do likewise. All to following Jesus. It's what he invites you to do. means learning how to be a good neighbor. Well, to people who come across your path. And the reason for that is because that's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus has done for us. And the call of Christianity is to be formed the likeness of Christ by the power of his spirit and community with his people and in obedience, hear that, through his word, period. And what has Jesus done for us? Because I think if we're looking honestly and doing the math again on ourselves, which is uncomfortable, but really helpful, honestly, because it's freeing, it leads to life. Like I admit that I'm dead and now I'm capable of resurrection by his power. That's the idea. When we do the math on our own selves, we realize that we have not loved the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength all of the time and perfectly. Oh, good grief. We have not loved God or neighbor half as much as any of us have loved ourselves. That's the reality. And so then where has that put us? Spiritually speaking, helpless and naked and bleeding and not half dead, fully dead, in a ditch. And what has God in love and mercy and grace for us done? Instead of passing us by, he came into this world as one of us. He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Guys, he intentionally put himself on our road to rescue us from the ditch at his own expense. The man in the ditch is bloody. Jesus is bloodied on the cross. The man in the ditch can't even move. Jesus cannot move off the cross. The man in the ditch is half dead. Jesus dies on the cross. That we might, at the expense of his life, be forgiven, healed, filled with his spirit, brought into community with each other. Then, with joy and enthusiasm, out of who we now are, new creations in Christ Jesus, go out and obey this command. You now go and do likewise. You know what? That sounds like a good idea. Let's go do that. Who you are determines what you do. I mean, Jesus talks about that elsewhere. You know, he compares people to trees. He's like, you know, there are good trees and there are bad trees. Yeah, people are kind of like trees. How do you know a good tree from a bad tree? Because it's not, you know, by walking up to the tree and going, hey, are you a good tree or are you a bad tree? 
doesn't matter what the tree says, even if the tree could talk. I mean, that would be strange. But you just look at the fruit. He's like, if the life of me, Jesus, is flowing in and through the tree, it will organically, it will naturally, it will natively, it will just spontaneously, it will automatically produce good fruit. And if it's not, it'll produce either no fruit or bad fruit. Look at what you're producing. It tells you who you are. It's kind of like a fireplace. And I know this is lost in South Florida, but we spend time up in North Carolina, and there are two kinds. There's the gas kind, which is actually the one you want. Because you just get a remote control and go, Boop, and then it goes, Boop, and it's fantastic. But then there's the old-fashioned wood-burning ones. That's the one I want you to think with me about. So when we're walking around in North Carolina in this neighborhood up there, okay, I, I don't have to wonder about whether one neighbor or this neighbor or that neighbor has a fire going in their wood-burning fireplace. I smell it three blocks away. So if that neighbor came out and said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a fire going in. I just look at his chimney. What are you talking about? You had smoke. Either you have a fire in your fireplace or the inside of your house is on fire and it's coming out your chimney. It's one of those two. I don't have to knock on the door. I don't have to go in. From the outside, I can look at the house and go, fire in the fireplace, no fire in the fireplace. Fire, no fire, no fire, no fire. Those people are out of town. That guy is like, holy cow, call the fire department. Like, It's 90 degrees in his house. I can smell it. I can see it. It's thick enough. It burns my eyes. I can feel it. <laughs> Makes me choke, you know, if it's. Who it is with people. Who you are shows up in what you do. And we can claim all day and night that we've got the fire of Christ burning deeply and roaring within us. And if we're doing nothing out here, no, we don't. At the very least, we've got to go back to that Jesus and, and re-surrender and say, man, I, I've walked away from you or I've never authentically come. And it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to be bearing fruit left and right big time, you know, and just it, it's an ever-increasing thing. As you learn to follow Jesus, as you learn to walk more closely, as you surrender more and more and more of your life to him, as you grow in trust and in love of him, and as you come into contact, with what he's really done for you, it transforms you from the inside out and it is your joy to produce fruit. You can't not do it. It, well, it's like fruit. It just comes out or it's like, like a fire. Smoke comes out of the furnace. I want to read to you another quote from Dr. Snodgrass. It's lengthy, but it's really profound. He starts with this. He says, our fear of earning salvation. Why, why is that a fear? Because it is a fear. Like everything in life, you earn. You earn money. You earn favor. You earn trust. You earn respect. You earn this. You earn that. And so we naturally come to this idea of relationship with God, and we think, well, we got to earn that too. Wait a minute. What was, what was the standard? It was it was love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength all the time and perfectly. Oh, we can't earn that. We're dead in the ditch. And God comes to us in Christ and he makes us alive. It's different. Radically so. We're saved by his works, not by anything we do. We work simply because he's transformed us from the inside out. And when you're transformed on the inside, out here, 
it shows up. It's the fruit. It's the product of it. But there is a concern in the church that we're going to go, oh man, if you're not doing and you got to do, and this is how you earn the favor of God, that's not the point. Jesus has earned the favor of God for you. He gives it to you as a free gift. But listen to what he says. He says, our fear of earning salvation has led to the idea that Christianity is a religion concerned only with what one believes or thinks and not with what one is. But this is a shallow understanding of belief. The parable of the Good Samaritan, like most of Scripture, is concerned with identity, that is to say, with who you and I really are. In effect, when people ask Jesus, what do I have to do? He asked in return, what kind of person are you? Because the answer to the second question also answers the first. Who you are determines what you do. He says the fear of works righteousness is far too exaggerated in most churches. Would that there were an equal fear of being found inactive. We would do better to realize that people who do not work cannot be righteous. They can't have the fire of Christ burning within them and the righteousness of Christ having clothed them. The question of identity is never merely a question of what we believe as fact, but of what we are, particularly what we are in relation to God and what motivates us and controls our being. We have torn thinking from being and being from doing, but what we are cannot be torn from what we do. What counts as life with God and gives hope of future life with God is a relation of love with God that gives us our identity as his sons and as his daughters, as those who have been rescued from the ditch by him and filled with his spirit and then reflects that love to others. Because how could you not? The idea of knowing God and yet not being conformed to God is a scandal, one that Scripture always combats and that modern Christians must combat as well. In this parable, Jesus seeks to make a man of knowledge into a man of practice, for anything less is not sufficient for eternal life. There you have it. So let me ask you this in closing. Who are you? And not... Who are you in terms of like if I walked up to you and said, well, who are you? You know, it's like walking up to a tree. Are you a good tree? Are you? Who are you based on what produce, what you do? If there's a fire, there's smoke. You're a good tree. There's fruit. Who are you? Are you a forgiven? Are you a healed? Are you a spirit-filled follower of Christ? Or not? You're like, well, I once was. Oh, well, this might be your comeback day. Good. Come on back. Recommit. Resurrender. And maybe you're like, no, that's not me. Not yet. But, you know, I'm willing at least to explore it. Well, we'd be happy to talk to you after the service today. And and in addition to that, on Alpha on Thursday night, 7 o'clock. I got that time right. In here. In here. That's for you. And our commitment is to give you the space to just out loud work out your thoughts and skepticisms and cares and concerns. And we'd love to have you. Secondly, who is the person on your road that you've been passing by? You know, maybe because they don't look and walk and talk and think and feel and vote and agree with you. Or maybe because it's just like, that guy's a project. Just too much. And the Spirit's been going, come on. Come on. That's your person. 
Who is that person? Thirdly, what can you do to serve that person the way that Jesus has served you? And how is that? Selfless, wholly, entirely. I mean, if you look at it just from the perspective of self-preservation, recklessly. Lastly, what can you do to bring them to Jesus? Maybe that's inviting them to Alpha. Maybe that's Rio Men at 7.30. Maybe that's Rio Women Tuesday night, 6.30. Maybe it's sending a, a link to a video that we do, whatever. Maybe it's just sitting down and having coffee. And saying, let me tell you something that's important to me. And I, you know, I've been sitting on it and I've been meaning to tell you and I thought, you know what? Make you listen. What can you do to bring them to Jesus? Mission is lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. That's the mission he's given us. And that's the mission we're called. And guys, it is a call to action. Okay? It's a fun thing. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for his wisdom and for his presence. Thank you for his grace and for his mercy. We thank you that though we have been foolish and that though we have made a mess of things at times, Lord, you did not pass us by. But your heart was, was the heart of the Samaritan in this story who looked at us and though we were estranged from you for a thousand reasons, you came to us. And at your expense forgave us, at your expense healed us, your expense, Lord. You have filled us. God, transform us. Call us back to that reality. Or maybe for the first time, call us to that. But let us reckon with the reality of the love of God for us in Christ. Let that change our identity. Let it change who we are. And operating from that identity, fire of the Spirit burning in our heart. Let us just go out and live. Let us live like Jesus. Let us live for Jesus. Let us learn how to be good neighbors to the hurting person on our We pray this and we ask this, Lord, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of the world. Pray this in Jesus' name.